You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. Isn't it interesting, of all of the animals that God chose to describe his people, he uses sheep. Yes, sheep are stupid as well. Isn't that true? Okay. Well, I, I guess I can only speak for myself. But there's been times where I've done some real bonehead things, knowing better than that. But nevertheless, I did it, right? And not only that, but they don't return affection, even when cared for faithfully. Does that describe us or what? Come on. Just like Jacob, just like us. Have you ever worked with a sheep before? Maybe at a petting zoo or on a farm? Were they very affectionate? Were they even very smart? We as Christians are often compared to sheep in the scriptures, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're just soft. In today's message, Pastor Mike explains that we're called sheep because we need a shepherd. We can't take care of ourselves without one. And even when we have a shepherd, do we respect it properly? Are we willing to return the love we're always given? Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 49 as he continues his message, The Fruitful Bough. God softened Esau's heart. Consider his experience there in his uncle Laban's home. And finally, he had met his match. Jacob was a supplanter. He was a conniver. He was someone who lived by his, his cunning and, and his wit. But now he's facing someone, you know, he had met his match. He, he switched. He had uh, served his uncle Laban for a period of, what was it, seven years. And... Uh, on the day that he was to give his uh, daughter to marry Jacob, what did he do? He pulled the switcheroo. And he sent his other daughter, Leah, into his tent. And then, confounded by all of what happened, uh, Uncle Laban says, oh, man, yeah, well, you know, she's the older sister, and I can't give the younger sister before the older sister is married. I, I tell you what we're going to do. You serve me for another seven years, and, uh, and you can have her hand as well. And so he agrees. And so he had met his match. But after 14 years of serving his uncle Laban, Jacob had had it. I mean, he was just absolutely taking advantage uh, of him. And so what does he do? He steals away in the night with his two brides, with his uncle Laban's daughters, the men servants, the maid servants, all of the flocks uh, that God had 
uh, blessed him with. And now news comes back to his uncle Laban of what Jacob had done. He stole away in the, the night. And so Laban is infuriated by this. And he is absolutely determined to catch up with him. And what is he going to do? He's going to kill Jacob, even as his brother Esau swore a vow to kill Jacob as well. But what happened the night before that he caught up with Jacob? God spoke to him. God revealed himself to him. He said, don't you dare touch that guy because he's one of mine, right? All of the while, God was with him. God was providing. God was protecting him. His hand was upon him. Do you see that? And so this is probably, at least in part, what Jacob was thinking about. He's looking back over his life now, his experiences with God, fleeing from his brother Esau, and how that God softened Esau's heart, the threats of his uncle Laban, and how that God appeared and warned him not to touch uh, Jacob at all. And in his fear, in his weakness, in his trouble, he experienced God's strength. You see, God was the mighty one, even as he expresses it here in this uh, prophecy of his. He was a, the mighty one because he had shown himself to be mighty in Jacob's life. And also something else that I think is so very, very important that you don't miss. I like the way that he puts this. He says, the mighty one of Jacob. Notice he doesn't refer to the mighty one as the mighty one of Abraham or the mighty one of Isaac. And yes, God was mighty to both Abraham and Isaac, his dad and his grandfather. But this is a personal testimony to God's faithfulness to him. You see, Jacob was kept in every circumstance. Listen, gang, each man, each woman, for themselves must put forth the hand of his own faith and grasp God's great hand for his own God. What, pro what, the, what profit uh, is of any value, if you think about it, if our testimony is only of what God has done in someone else's life, in your dad's life? You were raised in a Christian home, right? And, uh, but we need those own our own personal testimonies of God being mighty in our lives, of what God has done for us. You know, we need to be like, the equivalent of this in the New Testament would be like Thomas. Remember the first time he appeared to the disciples, Thomas wasn't present in the upper room. So he didn't believe it as they expressed what had just taken place. But on the second occasion, when Thomas was present in the upper room with the other disciples, Jesus just interrupts the conversation that's going on. And then he asked Thomas to come and put his hand in the gaping holes in his hands where they had driven the nails and, and uh, check out the, the side where they had pierced them through with the spear. And the evidence was so overwhelming that Thomas himself came to this conclusion. And this is the same conclusion that every one of us needs to get to in our own experience. He says, my Lord and my God. You see, until that actually happens, we're, we're going on secondhand knowledge. It's just hearsay. So every one of us needs to experience God as the mighty God for ourselves. It's not going to get the job done saying, oh, the mighty God of you know, Chuck Smith or the mighty God of Billy Graham or, 
or Greg Laurie or Raul Reese or, you know, we need to personalize this. And that's exactly what Jacob did. Now, the second title that's ascribed to God here, let's go back to our text. Notice he refers to God as the shepherd. Now, he's thinking about that shepherding work of God in his life. In fact, remember last time, go back to chapter 48 in verse 15. He expresses it this way. He said, and he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day. And isn't that at least in part the shepherd's responsibility to feed the sheep? In fact, isn't that the responsibility of the pastor of your church to feed the sheep? How do we do that? Through the study and the teaching of the word of God, right? And so that's what Jacob is thinking about here. He's referring to that shepherding work of God in his own personal life and experience. Now, let me tell you something. Now, remember, Jacob was a shepherd himself. So he knew something about shepherding. This is a great analogy. Jacob was a shepherd himself. And he knew how hard a job it was to be a shepherd. Why? Because sheep are wayward. Sheep are stubborn. Sheep are easily distracted. They're defenseless. They're helpless. I would even go as far as to say, I hope I don't offend anybody, because isn't it interesting, of all of the animals that God chose to describe his people, he uses sheep. Yes, sheep are stupid as well. Isn't that true? Okay. Well, I, I guess I can only speak for myself. But there's been times where I've done some real bonehead things, knowing better than that. But nevertheless, I did it, right? And not only that, but they don't return affection, even when cared for faithfully. Does that describe us or what? Come on. Just like Jacob, just like us. Yet nevertheless, God performed a shepherd's work for Jacob throughout his long life. You know, but I I hope and I trust, not only would you be able to testify to God being the mighty God in your own personal life, but also as your shepherd. In fact, Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd, isn't he? Right? And uh, just think about the administration, think about the ministry, the work of the shepherd within our own lives. I hope, that everyone, I hope that's, that's your personal experience as well. What a beautiful description of Jesus. You know, before we had our new bulletins out, we used to, our old ones, and I found an old copy of it down in my basement. My basement is loaded with Harvest Christian Fellowship, you know, paraphernalia over the... You wouldn't believe all of the boxes of stuff that I have uh, downstairs in my basement. And I found one of our old bulletins back there. And we used to have this really neat picture of Jesus. It was a contemporary picture. It wasn't one of these somber pictures, you know, Jesus glowing in the dark kind of a picture. It was a really cool picture of Jesus, you know, like a youthful picture of Jesus. Uh, really cool. And, uh, and he has the lamb around his shoulders and with a smile on his face. Just a really cool picture. Any of you guys, Regina, you would remember. You've been around long enough. Johnny, you remember that? You've been around. Remember that picture? It was on our bulletins. And, uh, and I, just, I just love that image of Jesus being our shepherd. Well, anyway, I digress here. Let's go on. The third image is that of God being Jacob's rock, or rather the stone of Israel. Now, what is he thinking about here? 
Well, think about the properties and the characteristics and the symbolism of a rock. It's a symbol of firmness. It's a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of protection. It's a symbol of a foundation. God is a rock for our foundation, the foundation of our lives. And we need to build our lives, our thoughts, our efforts, our hopes there. Because if we build our house upon that rock, who is Jesus Christ, it'll stand. It'll be able to endure the storms of life. Even as Jesus expressed it so well in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 7 and verses 24 and 25, where he has the picture in contrast. The, the fellow who's built his house upon a rock and the fellow who built his house upon the sand without any foundation. The storms of life come up and they beat down the house that had no foundation. Our foundation is God. God is a rock for a foundation. God is a rock for a fortress. It's where we go to flee in time of need. We hide ourselves in him. You know, I like uh, the picture that Isaiah, in his book, uh, portrays of God in Isaiah 33 and verse 16. It says, our defense shall be the munition of rocks. The idea there is, you know, we shall laugh to scorn anyone who seeks to assault us. We'll never be able to be stormed by any foe and their being uh, successful. But then also, when you think about the symbolism of the rock, God is also a rock for shade and refreshment. We come close to him from out of the scorching heat. That scorching heat may represent the trials that you're going through within your life. And we'll find coolness and moisture in those clefts. So the rock of Israel or rather, the rock of Jacob. And then the last picture that's painted for us here is that of God the Almighty. Verse 25, or the El Shaddai. Often used in implying might or strength. And usually when we use that phrase or that explanation, the Almighty or El Shaddai in the Hebrew, we usually think of it in that way, right? We usually think of it implying might or strength. And yes, that application would be correct. But the name, this is going to surprise you now. Listen to this. The name is actually based on a Hebrew noun, which is the Hebrew word shad, which interestingly enough means and refers to the female breast. Now, why am I even mentioning that? What does that suggest? Well, the idea here then is God is the one that we as his people find our nourishment. Now, and, and to just kind of validate that claim, this would actually be in keeping with what is recorded for us in verse 25 of our text this morning, because notice Jacob goes on to declare blessings of the breasts and of the womb. So that would be keeping in the explanation of all of this, wouldn't it? And uh, so just something to, to think about. So anyway, uh, he is the source of every good and perfect gift. The Almighty, the El Shaddai. Now, the last verse of Jacob's prophecy, verse 26, the blessings 
of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. In other words, he excelled over all of his brothers. He exceeded them in righteousness and in holiness and in his relationship with God. But the first question that I want to ask you, this is interesting, this pronunciation here, was his experiences greater than the blessings that were bestowed upon his father and his grandfather. I'm talking about Abraham and Isaac. And just think about all of the wonderful things that God had done for Abraham and Isaac even before Jacob. Think about that. Think about Father Abraham, who uh, is recommended to us as the father of the faith. But this is Jacob's testimony. What is he testifying to? Well, in other words, he's suggesting that he received in inverse proportion to his just deserts. Have you ever felt that way yourself? That you're getting more than what you deserve in your relationship with God? You should feel that way, because guess what? None of you deserve anything. You deserve squat, really. Isn't it true? I mean, come on. God would have been just and right in wiping you out the first time that you, you know, failed to measure up to his standards. But nevertheless, he's blessed us in spite of ourselves. Isn't that true? The Bible, I'll give you an example of this from the scriptures. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is there any you know, greater example than that? He didn't, you know, he didn't send his son into the world after we cleaned our act up. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, we didn't deserve it. There wasn't anything that we did that would ever warrant God sending his only begotten son into this world to die in our place. He went from the highest place in heaven, exalted and worshipped there by all of the angels, to the lowest place upon the earth, born in a dung heap, you know, in a trough where they would feed the, the burdens of beasts, you know, there in a, in a stable. How crazy was that? So he's testifying to the fact that he received an inverse proportion to his just deserts. You know, the equivalent of this in the New Testament would be the parable of the two debtors. One was forgiven much, but in response to that, they loved much. So instead of feeling cheated by life, as so many do, he looked back over his days and felt himself very fortunate of all men. Right? We talked a little bit about this last time. Or another interpretation would be the blessings Jacob was bestowing upon his son Joseph is unequal in all of the earth. Oh man, we are a privileged group of people. I mean, you know, you can't put a dollar and cents value to what we already possess in Jesus Christ. And all of this was certainly beyond Joseph's noble share. Think of the wealth. Think of the wealth of Egypt at this time, the most powerful nation upon the face of the earth. Egypt was rich at this time beyond imagination. And you can be sure that Joseph shared in a noble share of that wealth. You know, the Egyptians were intent on preserving wealth beyond death, thus the intricate burial chambers, because they thought you could take it with them. You know, while we were back in Phoenix, uh, we, had, you know, we had a late checkout. They, they canceled our flight because of what was going on with the grounding of those 737s. And uh, we happened to be on one of those 737s going back 
from Phoenix to Newark. So they canceled our flight. But anyway, we were fortunate enough to get a later flight. We were supposed to leave early in the morning, but we were just thankful and fortunate that we got a later flight later in the afternoon. I think we left like 4.30 in the afternoon. So we get up. We were on a time you know, difference. We were already jet lagged, so we would wake up like 7 o'clock in the morning. So we had from 7 o'clock in the morning to like 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon to fly back to Newark. So what are we going to do? So there was this uh, mummy exhibition at the Phoenix Science Museum that my wife was so, you know, we're going to go see the mummy exhibit. And uh, I would have been happy to just, you know, hang out at the pool. Anyway, so off we go to the, the museum, the Phoenix Science Museum, to see this mummy exhibit, the largest mummy exhibit ever gotten together anywhere. And what was interesting, in some of the mummies, they weren't all Egyptian mummies, but many of them were, and they showed some of the things that were buried along with the mummies in their tomb. And it was all of these interesting idols and figures and jewelry and rings, which just goes to show you, I mean, this was so very, very true. They were intent on preserving wealth beyond death, thus the intricate burial chambers, they thought that you could take it with you. If you were wealthy in life and if you amassed great wealth, that you could take it along with you. But of course, you, know, you can't. And Jesus addressed that subject when he says, you know, don't stores of treasure upon the earth because the thieves will break in and they'll rob you, the, the moth, the rust, they'll pervert it. And, you know, only that which we do for Christ, right, will remain and last forever. So then he counsels us to store up treasures rather in heaven and not upon the earth. Jacob is saying here then, the greatest blessings is that of the spiritual saw, because they alone will last forever, throughout eternity. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth shall pass away. What will last forever? Only God and the things that we do for him as we are united together with Jesus. And his life is seen through us, through our works as his. You see, what he does through us, gang, is for eternity and everlasting. Remember what Jesus said, John's Gospel in chapter 10, in verse 10, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Mama didn't raise no fools, right? You guys are wise, right? I mean, let's get everything that we possibly can get out of life. How do we do that? Make sure that you've made your abode in God and stay there. Because that alone will last for all of eternity. In my Father's house There's a place for me in my father's house where I long to be oh my when something gets close to an ending we naturally turn our attention to the beginning when a child is about to graduate we look at baby pictures when a beloved spouse of many years grows close to death we go over the story of how we met when we pack up our stuff and move away from a house we remember the first times we walked in the door. 
And as we draw close to the end of days, it seems only fitting to return to in the beginning. We can watch as light is created in land and sea and all the creatures, day and night in the sun and moon. And when we take a look at the glorious and amazing creation of the world, we can remember that it's the same God from the beginning who is ruling over the end. We can watch in awe, remembering that the end is also good news as we eagerly await His return. And here at In My Father's House, we're so glad you've decided to spend your day with us. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. It's easy to get here with access from Port Authority and Penn Station on 34th. We'd love to see you. Pop over to our website, harvestnyc.org, to find times and so much more. And if you feel compelled to partner with this ministry financially, there's a link for that as well. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. While you're there, take a look around to find additional audio, a link to our Vimeo and podcasts. That's all we have time for today. We've loved spending time with you, and we can't wait to meet up with you again. See you next time here in my father's house.